Good morning. Our fourth Sunday sermon series through Luke brings us today to Luke uh, 7, uh, verses 11 through 17. And we uh, have the raising of the son of the, the widow from Nain. And um, as usual in the scriptures, there's a whole lot going on here. And I think uh, maybe the main message is, is uh, that the Messiah is, has come to bring hope to Israel. And this widow receiving her son back to life uh, is a, uh, a clear sign of that. And so let's pray that God will teach us that we'll get everything that, that we can out of uh, his word today. Our Lord, once more, we just ask, um, help us, please. Help us to hear, help us to receive. Lord, help me to proclaim uh, these your words as your very oracles. And for all of us uh, to believe that these are the very words of God. We ask it again uh, in the name, by the authority, by the blood of the risen Christ. Amen. Messiah brings hope to Israel. Jesus ministered mercy after mercy to Israel, his whole tenure as Messiah. He reached out to them to the end. Jesus is Israel's hope today. Even while they are severed from the covenant, he protects them. If you read uh, Revelation 12, the end of it, verses 13 through 16, it talks about the woman who gave birth to the son, uh, the son who was raised back to the right hand of God, that woman would be Israel. And how all of Satan's attacks against her, he uh, helps her in them. Now, we see that uh, Israel has gotten quite a few uh, broadsides in her history too, hasn't she? And these curses are called upon her through her forsaking of her covenant. But even then, God still has mercies upon her. Well, Jesus is Israel's hope. Jesus is our hope. Our hope in him helps to protect us from uh, discouragement. Now look at Hebrews uh, 12. And uh, verse 11 and 12 say, Now no chastening or discipline, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So here we are in this, uh, <clears throat> this chapter uh, this is the second incident after Jesus gives uh, his uh, big teaching manifesto, the uh, Sermon on the Plain. We just had him healing the centurion's young servant, and we're going to refer back to that and see how these two incidents work together. So here, let's uh, read our scripture that we're starting with today, Luke seven eleven, And it came about on the next day, right after he's uh, done with... Uh, healing the centurion servant. He went into a city that was called Nain, and many of his disciples brought themselves along with him. And also there was a numerous throng. So, um, in, 
If you uh, look at the, the outline there of, uh, of Luke, uh, the review of it, you'll notice under point 8, Roman numeral 8, or V-I-I-I, in the turning point healings, notice that Jesus, back in chapter 5, uh, brought a leper back into the house of Israel. He had to touch the unclean in order to do that. I'm pointing that out today because Jesus is once again going to contact ceremonial uncleanness. Again, uh, look at uh, Roman numeral 11 or XI on the next page. Jesus' uh, teaching manifesto, the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Plain gives the earthy evidence of the spiritual traits that are in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Here on the Sermon in the the Plain, uh, it's blessed are the poor, just the plain old poor. And we have the uh, rich are posed as those who hate the poor disciples of Christ. But Christ's disciples are to love those who hate them. Christ's disciples are to give generously in the, the Sermon on the Plain. Living by pity. Notice I have uh, pity highlighted there. That's going to be a part of Jesus' response to the widow. We have in the Sermon on the Plain that only right teaching can produce right living. Always convicting self first. We go to the Bible not to find out what's wrong with everybody else, but to find out what's wrong with me. But then, of course, I, I do want to help anyone that I can when I've learned a lesson to pass it along to someone else. If I have learned it rightly, I'll, I'll be able to do that humbly, won't I? Except we have to build squarely, exclusively on Christ. Only by doing that will we survive the floodplains that are life, just life in a fallen world. Last time we saw a faith that astonished Jesus. Jesus was astonished when the centurion said, you don't even have to come to my house. You can just say that my servant is healed and it will happen. And Jesus turns around to the crowd and says, I haven't seen faith like this in in all of Israel. And it astounded him. And that astounded us. That here, uh, God the Son is astounded by something. But we saw that God was astounded in the uh, Old Testament scriptures as well. So here we are at Luke 7, 11. It says the next day. So things are just going... uh, One after another in Jesus' ministry, Uh, we only have a fraction of what Jesus did, right? When we're reading this, uh, it's easy to forget that these are uh, highly selected incidents, meaning that uh, tons of material had to be bypassed. Um, None, however, of which we uh, need at present. I suspect that uh, when we get into the Lord's presence, he'll go, go over everything that he did and said and many other things besides. But this is how the book of John ends, John twenty one twenty five, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So when we say one thing after another, we really mean it. I mean, he... he had a very full ministry in those uh, two to three years in which he ministered. But again, 2 Peter 1.3 says we have all that we need relating to life and godliness or reverence. 
So we don't need all of the things that he did. These are representative, the representative ones that are worded exactly how we need to be able to walk by faith through this life and to do so blamelessly. Kids speak. Kids. After Jesus was baptized, he did and said so many things that it would have been hard to write them all down. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote everything about Jesus that we need to know. Each time Jesus did or said something, we learned something new about him. And so it's going to be the same today when we read this. Now note that Luke's method, this is true of the Gospels generally, is selected incidents that mostly tell their own story. Not a whole lot of editorial commenting. It's just, you know, this this person went here, did this, said this, they responded this way. You know, not a whole lot of inserting, you know, uh, like John does at the end of John 2, for Jesus knew what was in man. You know, that's an editorial comment. There's not a whole lot of editorial comments. It's just you read it, and that's, the, that's where you're supposed to draw your lesson. The key is in the way that it is told. That's why we pay attention to the words. Same thing in the Old Testament narratives. It's both literary and historical, not one or the other. We're not reading the incident to just kind of get our ideas about, okay, well, that's what happened. Uh, so that, you know, we can maybe paraphrase it this way. No, the way that it's recorded is just as in, important as the incident itself. We picture Jesus uh, going about with 12, right? We picture him with uh, 12 disciples, but we often forget that Jesus had many disciples, right? And that we have that in our verse today, that many disciples <clears throat> went with them, some of whom accompanied him, of course, less frequently, Uh, discipleship was not their living. They had a living to make. So they would follow Jesus when they could. But the 12 were chosen specifically to be with him. That became their living. When he said, follow me to the 12, uh, they weren't doing something else uh, along with that. But then today we also have a larger crowd. The curious, those who uh, follow fads. And just imagine how patient Jesus had to be you know, with all these people following him that he knew that uh, they didn't really get it. Uh, but he did not shave the truth for their sakes. He always told them the truth, which led to mass departure, departures on occasion, didn't it? Like in John 6, when he says, you're, you're not seeking me because you believe, you just want to be fed because he had made the, you know, the big amount of bread. And at the end of that, it says everybody left where he even asked his own disciples, are you going to leave me too? And so pretty, you know, it sounded like it got whittled down to just about the 12. And they're like, no, you know, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? All right. So he uh, comes to um, Nain, the city Nain in the Galilee region, um, a little uh, south uh, west of uh, the Lake Galilee or Sea of Galilee. Uh, Interesting, it's on the other side of a hill from Shunem, which was where Elisha or Elisha resurrected a boy. And I highlight Elisha because we're not going to refer to him again specifically. So every every time we're going to refer to Elijah, but uh, Elisha resurrected a boy as well. All right, moving on to Luke 7.12. But as he neared the gate of the city, then see, one having died was being carried forth, 
an only son of his mother, and she a widow. And an ample crowd from the city was with her. So here's Jesus with his crowd, and here's them with uh, their crowd. One commentator points out Luke's pattern of Jesus ministering to a male, then a female. That's that's how Luke records it. I didn't look to see if that was so, but I'll throw it out there. And as we go through, we'll we'll see, right? But this is one instance where a Gentile uh, man that he ministers to, and now a a woman he ministers to. Not not a Gentile, uh, importantly. Uh, It says, see, and usually, I think most translations say, behold, uh, but it's just the imperative of, of the word see. So he's focusing our attention probably on the coincidence of the procession's exit just as Jesus is entering. So he's entering and look, there, here's a procession coming out as Jesus' procession is coming in. But I'm going to offer you another uh, possibility for why the behold in a second. But first, kids speak. Kids When Jesus was going into a city called Nain, there was a funeral going out of the city to bury a young man. This young man's mom didn't have a husband, probably had died, and this was her only child. So this was very sad. All right, here we see parallels between this episode and the one of Elijah as recorded in 1 Kings 7, 8 through 24. Look at that. Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, and in verse 8, the word of Yahweh came to him, to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Which is interesting, because, of course, it's through Elijah's work that they are all provided for. But it is through her original stuff. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, "Uh, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As Yahweh your God lives. And this is interesting. So, you know, she's uh, from a, a Gentile city, but she knows about Yahweh and she recognizes this is a Yahweh person. Uh, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. We don't have any food left. We're just going to starve. And Elijah said to her, and of course, you know, there's a famine in, in the land. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run, out, run, run dry until the day Yahweh sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she uh, and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him 
to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? So, you know, that's a, that's a good sign when you're able to talk freely with God. You know, if that's what you're thinking, then you, you say it. And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And then Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And apparently not the first time, not the second time, but the third time. So he kept on calling. So it's kind of like Elijah wasn't taking no for an answer. He I mean, he would have eventually, but I mean, he's, he he's apparently thought, well, I'm going to ask it at least three times. Maybe he thought, I'll ask seven times before I stop. And Elijah took the child and brought him down to the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And then pay attention here. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is the truth. That's going to be a, a little bit of a contrast to the Nain incident and the, the Nain widow. And we will be pointing that out. So think of the two accounts that we have here. The uh, Elijah uh, incident where he was entering the city when he met the widow of Zarephath, just as Jesus is entering a city. Uh, she too had a son and apparently her only child. Her son also died, although later, and was revived. And Elijah was specifically sent to her, and perhaps this is the reason that that uh, Luke says, Behold, is that he's saying, Hey, look, you know, a, a widow coming out of a city, and he knows that our minds go right back to Elijah, and he's saying, You're about to see some parallels. Jesus was always on his mission from God. And he was therefore at this town by God's sending, just like God told uh, Elijah, go to Zarephath. So wherever Jesus went, it was pretty much God telling him, go here. However, Elijah was sent to a Gentile widow. Jesus' encounter is with a widow of Israel. So the, the pattern, go back to Luke 4, and this is why his hometown church uh, was about to kill him. In Luke chapter uh, 4 and verses 25 through 27, Jesus is talking to them, and this is what got them mad. He says, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So this is already, you know, going to get under their skin. Uh, even though it's right in scriptures, all they had to do, they should have thought, well, we've always known that. Okay, so maybe we better think about this. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Nahum and the Syrian. And so <laughs> he doesn't have to go any further than that. I mean, he doesn't even have to draw a lesson, and that's when they try to kill him. They take him and intend to throw him off a cliff because they get the message. Oh, so, you know, God's helping the Gentiles and, and not Israel, which if they even concluded that, they should have said again because that's what he had done before. And that is what Jesus was suggesting 
that, of course, from uh, the earlier in the incident, he knows that his hometown congregation takes him for granted, doesn't have real faith, and are kind of like, hey, show us some of these miracles we're hearing about. That would be really groovy. You know, they're just in it for the excitement factor or something like that. So, yeah, Jesus already knows they don't believe. So uh, they show that they don't believe. They try to kill him. But in the, in the, uh, the two incidents that Jesus quotes to them, there's a Gentile widow and a Gentile commander. So an Israeli widow instead seems to say, so, you know, the fact that he just ministered to a, Gen, a Gentile commander, didn't he? A centurion. And so we see, and so now there's a widow, but ah, a little shift. An Israeli widow. What's that saying? That, and that's highly important, I think. Seems to say that God was still extending his mercies to Israel throughout Jesus' ministry. That even though his hometown church tried to kill him, that wasn't the point that he cut Israel off. And of course, we all know what's, what's coming a little down the line. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's, he's weeping. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Okay, that's where we're going. So that's still in Jesus' heart here. And this may be the central message of this incident, that God is still holding out hope to Israel. So Isaiah 62.4, it, it maybe is a little bit like, you know, we had uh, Jeremiah a couple of weeks ago where we remembered that, you know, God was still telling Zedekiah the day before, you know, they, uh, the city was taken. If all you have to do is surrender and the city won't be burned. He had that long to decide something that, had that critical of a consequence. So Isaiah 62, 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, and for Yahweh delights in you, and your land shall be married. So the widow, it will no longer be desolate, is God's promise. And so the, the uh, uh, gesture of holding this out to Israel, at least, and telling them, hey, on my end, on God's end, I, I will restore you. Just turn to me. Seems to be uh, something that's being gotten across here. And though, again, Israel would remain desolate after Jesus' time, you know, when we definitely got the, you know, in the book of Acts, they do go to the Jews first, but there comes a point where Paul says, we're just going to the Gentiles from now on. And they didn't completely cut the Jews off, but there was kind of an official decision. We we can see how far we're going to get with Israel, not far. So uh, Israel has remained desolate. But they will be joined to God still again, according to Romans eleven twenty five. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, <clears throat> blindness will be taken away from Israel. The blindness is, that's on them today. Kids speak. Kids, Jesus meeting this widow, and that means she doesn't have a husband, is a lot like the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. God sent Elijah to a widow who just had one son, And guess what happened to that son? He died too. Do you think Luke's story about Jesus is going to get happier or sadder? Well, it's going to get happier, so don't worry. All right, so here we go. 
Another instructive uh, difference in the stories is Elijah's bodily involvement, how he stretches himself out on the trial, versus the healing of Jesus by merely speaking. And the message there seems to be an an Elijah-like prophet has come, but one even more powerful. And Elijah was a, a powerful prophet, suggesting a final fulfillment of what Elijah pointed to messianically. And the crowd seemed to have understood this when you get to the end of the, of the incident and they're like a great prophet has come amongst us. Again, Elijah saved the widow and her son first, then raised the dead son later, whereas the Nain widow situation seemed to symbolize the near dead hopes of Israel. They had refused every prophet sent to them. Look at uh, Luke chapter 20. And Luke chapter uh, 20 and verse 9, he began to tell the people a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, went into a far country for a long time. Again, it's a parable. So who's the, who's the guy who's renting it out? God. Now at, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Who's the, who's the servant? One of God's prophets. Again, he sent another servant. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. Another prophet whom Israel rejected. Again, he sent a third. They wounded him and cast him out. And uh, cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dresser saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And, of course, it ends up with the vineyard saying, Okay, well, that's it for you. Uh, and sending destruction on them, which he did very specifically in A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. So, um, the son would be a make-or-break proposition for Israel. So when Jesus comes, he's the son. All of these prophets that Israel has rejected, now the son is here. This Jesus in this parable is saying, this is your last chance. But Jesus was willing and able to save them as this healing symbolizes. Now let's talk about God's special care for orphans and widows, because that certainly is right in the forefront of this today. After Matthew through Acts, the first epistle in the original New Testament order, James very quickly reaffirms God's care through his people for needy orphans and widows. So look at uh, James 1 and verse uh, 27. The last verse of the chapter, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So he lays it out pretty, pretty plain like there. And again, not just any uh, orphan or widow, but those in their trouble somewhere where you can help them out. Now, of course, that could even be emotional distress, but. Uh, Christians are supposed to interact with orphans and widows. So that's there. God has 
uh, always claim the status of protector of the orphan and widow. Deuteronomy 10, 18, Psalm 68, 5, Malachi 3, 5. And when we show uh, pity to the orphan and the widow, we're actually sitting uh, in a, a judgment seat dispensing mercy with God. And again, when we read Deuteronomy 10.18, there it says, do judgment for the widow and orphan, meaning do what's right, meaning help them. God has always ministered this care largely through his people, just like James 1.27. You could read Deuteronomy 14.28 and 29, Deuteronomy 27.19, Zechariah 7.10. Those are all verses that say that who, how is God going to help the orphan and the widow? Mainly through us. So, what would Jesus do? He would help the afflicted, fatherless, and widow. Kids speak. Kids, God cares about widows and orphans. Orphans are those who have no parents or sometimes just those who have no dad. God helps them. What is God's main way of helping them? Sending us to help them. So that takes uh, time out of our schedules, doesn't it? Yeah, something we have to add in there. Can't just say, well, somebody will do it. Luke 7.13 And the Lord, having seen her, was moved inwardly toward her, and he said to her, Don't cry. Notice Luke uh, calls Jesus the Lord here. says the Lord was moved. He's writing to Theophilus. He doesn't want Theophilus or us to miss Jesus' sovereignty in this situation. He is Lord. It says that he was moved inwardly. This uh, Greek word is where we get our word spleen from. Uh, he, his uh, spleen went out, his, his seat of emotions. And uh, this verb is only in the Gospels and mostly of Jesus' pity on the crowds, but especially in that one uh, instance where uh, he sees them like shepherdless sheep, in, as it's recorded in Mark 6.34, and where he uses that as an incidence for his disciples. You give them something to eat. You help them. This is Luke's only use of the word with reference to Jesus, and then two other times he uses it once in the parable of the Samaritan. The Samaritan was moved to help the stranger. And then the prodigal son's dad was moved when he saw his son coming at a distance. Those are the three times this word is used. This incident then is moving us towards Luke 13.34. Look at Luke 13.34. That we've had at least uh, indirect reference to before. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus apparently didn't respond to every situation with as deep an emotion. Why, why is his being moved here being pointed out? Because he didn't always respond that deeply. He responded personally, not automatically or mechanically. And here we see our instructor, our example from Luke 640. He says the disciples do as the teacher does. The teacher is moved with compassion. We should be moved with compassion. 
And it exemplifies the pity from the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6.36. Look look back at at that one. And where it says merciful, remember we said that, that it's not the usual word for mercy, and so we chose the word piteous to uh, be piteous towards those in need. Uh, Therefore, be piteous, just as your father also is piteous. Kids speak. Kids, when Jesus saw the poor widow woman whose son had died, he felt really sorry for her. And he told her to stop crying. So what do you think Jesus was about to do? The command to cry, not to cry, is a wonderful one, for it means that he's going to give her a reason not to cry. Instead of the uh, parent that's saying, you you stop crying or I'll give you a reason to cry. He's saying, I'm going to give you a reason not to cry. Don't sorrow is a command for particular situations. If you look that up and try and, you know, put words in combination, you know, not cry, not mourn, not sorrow, things like that. Yeah, you'll find that it's uh, pretty limited and and it's always in a particular situation. Why am I saying that? Because of the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, meaning it's good to mourn. What's it good to mourn about? Well, that's the second beatitude. What's the first beatitude in in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the, the poor in spirit. So those who mourn over their spiritual poverty are blessed. Just as rejoicing for our salvation is equally appropriate, right alongside the sorrow. Although rejoicing should generally win out, since it will fully win out in the end. Revelation 21, 4, there he will wipe every tear from their eyes. So we won't have to be sorry for sin anymore at that point. Luke seven fourteen, And having come near, he touched the bier, the, the funeral, uh, the coffin, and, and uh, maybe a real tight-knit uh, wicker, probably something that a, a poor person would use. And those carrying it stood still, and, and he said, Young man, to you I say, be raised. Those carrying the coffin had to become ceremonially unclean. Numbers 19, 11 through 22 explains how if you touch a dead person or something that a dead person touched, you were ceremonially unclean. And it was a heightened ceremonial uncleanness. So a kind of an ordinary ceremonial uncleanness would simply mean washing your clothes or rinsing your clothes off, dipping down in some water at the end of the day or or just washing them and hanging them up. And you were ceremonially clean. But here, you had to cleanse yourself on the third day and the seventh day. So it take, the whole process takes a week in order to become clean again. This was expected. God wasn't saying, uh, gee, when people die, just leave them where they are. No, he, he knew that you had to touch them. You had to put them in a coffin. And everybody that touched them was ceremonially unclean for seven days. That did, was not a sin. Ceremonial uncleanness was not Uh, sinful in itself. So Jesus was joining the coffin carriers who would have to do this washing. Or Jesus, in removing the cause of the uncleanness, which was the death, also removed the necessity for cleansing, at least for himself, uh, since, I mean, he's... um, uh, 
immediately saying this, but maybe for the, the whole crowd. He's not dead anymore, so, you know, I, I guess if somebody was particular, they might say, yeah, but he was dead when we first touched him, so we'll be safe and go ahead and, I don't know. But uh, with the leper, back in Luke five thirteen, he touched the leper. And again, that would make me ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean. Remember that biblical leprosy was, was not contagious, so, but it, was, uh, it would make me unclean to touch an unclean person. It seemed that Jesus was removing the need for the ceremonial cleansing with the removal of the leprosy. If not, then Jesus' ceremonial cleansing connected was only symbolic again. No defilement of the soul is transferred in Old Testament ceremonial uncleanness. Jesus addressed the man, the young man, only because the lad would be returning to his body. So, in other words, somebody might say, oh, he's talking to a dead person there. And Deuteronomy 18.11 says, don't speak to the dead. <clears throat> so, no, he was not doing necromancy. He's bringing him alive. Now, the Elijah incident that we read earlier gives more details. If you'll remember verses 21 and 22, he asked that the lad's soul come back. So, meaning the soul had departed. And so, when Jesus said, be raised, that would have entailed the same return, that God would have returned this young man's soul to him as well. And we can speculate, where was the soul in the meantime? Doesn't matter, it came back. <laughs> kids speak, kids, the coffin was open and Jesus told the dead boy to get up. So now what do you think is going to happen? All right. And by the way, Jesus has already commanded a rise twice in Luke Luke 5:24 to the paralytic get up you know get get up and 6:8 that was just for the a man with a withered hand to stand in the middle of the crowd for his healing but this one of course this get you know get up is the the biggest one the best one and later he's going to say the same thing to a dead little girl a couple of chap or next chapter Luke 8:54 all right Luke 7:15 okay kids i said what's going to happen next here it is and the dead sat up and began to speak, and he gave him to his mother. The real focus of the miracle then was the woman. Jesus pitied her, and he now returned her boy to her. You know, you think how much harder things would have been on her without a, a son to you know chop the wood, etc. Speaking showed that the lad was fully restored. In our day, we have to put in a caveat here. No, Jesus didn't create a zombie. Okay, he, the, the, the man was fully restored and he starts speaking. He's a regular, regular human in the land of the living again. Well, think about this. God will be able to even more fully restore us in the resurrection. Where uh, Martha said, I, I know that uh, my brother will... Uh, be alive in the, in the resurrection. Yes. So we're going to be restored one day as well. Luke seven sixteen, And fear grasped all of them. And they were glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked in upon his people. They feared because of a greater power than the greatest power all men naturally acknowledge, which is death. Many men doubt God, but no man doubts death. But here was someone overriding death. 
They had doubtless never heard of such in recent memory. They knew of, you know, about Elijah and cases like that in the Old Testament. When's the last time they heard of it actually happening to somebody? The crowd's conversation then took two main paths. One, it took their thoughts back to Elijah and Elisha, especially a great prophet has risen. Yet here, Jesus did it just with a word, betraying a greater power than the miracle-working prophets of old. And, and here's a, the problem. Instead of Messiah's real greatness, they were expecting a more dramatic great, greatness. Like maybe you can do what Ezekiel did and make a whole valley of dry bones, become an army so we can attack the Romans. You know, get out from under our overlords. That, that was a, a, appeared to be a prevailing thought that if the Messiah is coming, he's going to deliver us. Well, he, if he's going to deliver us, he has to deliver us from the Romans. And so they weren't looking for a, a suffering Messiah, were they? Kids speak, kids. And of course, Messiah would be, you know, will be delivering his people from all enemies. But the suffering came first. Kids speak, kids. When Jesus raised the young man back to life, the people were afraid and happy. Has any person ever had as much power as Jesus? No. Is Jesus powerful enough to take away our sins? Yes. So the hope in this miracle, and we don't do this for all of our guests, so we don't say, you know, put, put them in the sermon. So uh, the hope in this miracle is reflected in the assessment that God had looked in upon the people. And I'm saying looked in because it's in the middle voice. So he and uh, God has involved himself in looking in on his people. The, it's a verb um, form of the word for an overseer or bishop. So episkopos, that's, this is the verb form of episkopos, an overseer. So it means to inspect or go see. It's usually translated visit. God has visited his people. Now, rightly, they should have feared a visit from God, Right? I mean, John the Baptist is there refusing people baptism because they're not repentant. So, you know, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. They should be fearing a visit from God, but they rightly judge that God's intentions through Christ were kind ones. This, here's somebody who, who's pitying us, obviously. And finally, Luke seven seventeen, And this word about him went out in all Judea and all the region around. As usual, Luke records the news of this incident making very broad rounds. And, well, kind of like, duh. <laughs> I mean, somebody raised from the dead, yeah, that news is going to get around, isn't it? But this is like the fifth time that Luke has said, you know, this went to like every little village, you know, this news got everywhere. He, he always includes that. Uh, Judea. Um, I, I was like, wait, but Judea, that's the southern part, you know, Galilee's the northern part and Samaria's in between them. But Luke uses Judea of like the whole Palestine region all the way back in Luke 1.5. So that's what he's talking about er everywhere. When Peter witnesses to the Jews in Acts 2, and we've already covered this in our, in our Sunday school, he rightly assumes their knowledge of Jesus' miracles. Acts 2.22 whom you knew that he did these miracles, Peter said to them. Nowadays, think about this, how do people get to hear about Jesus' miracles? Well, we've got to tell them, right? We tell people, Jesus did miracles. 
And how would we pursue that as a, as a testimony today? Well, I think the simplest is probably, do you, you could phrase it either positively or negatively, do you accept the miracles of Jesus? Or you could ask, do you doubt the miracles of Jesus? And if, if they will affirm the miracles of Jesus, then you can take that to the same place Jesus takes it. Well, then why don't you accept him? Jesus said, said strangely almost, if you don't believe me, believe me for the works sakes. So it is something, it is a, a, a witnessing tool. But what did Judean uh, people do with such knowledge? Even accepting it is true, they would say, well, yeah, but what does that have to do with me? You know, when it got 10 miles away and, you know, when, when people are hearing about it, oh, that happened up in Nain and, you know, um, maybe I'll never be able to verify that. Okay, I, I believe it. it. It sounds true. A lot of people saw it. But, you know, how does that affect me? And even if they got lathered up about it, how much initial excitement over noteworthy incidents throughout history have actually produced meaningful follow-through. So even if they, you know, got all a flutter about, oh, well, maybe the Messiah is with us, you know. Hey, go, go back to Luke chapter 1, right, where there was all the, the talk, you know, about, oh, you know, uh, John the Baptist and his dad going uh, mute, and, you know, the Messiah has been born, and they had plenty of evidence then. And, of course, you know, when he's in his ministry 30 years later, who remembers that? And so same thing here. Even if they get stirred up, it's not going to take them to where it's supposed to take them, to God. Even if someone traveled far to hear Jesus as a rule, they would get no further in their perception of him than they already had in their view of God through scriptures. Right? And that's exactly what, uh, what Abraham said to the rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. He said, no, if your brother's don't believe in Moses and the prophets, they won't believe in God even if somebody raises from the dead. So same thing here. If they aren't already full of faith in God through the scriptures, then this miracle isn't going to really change them. It might again in the short term, just like all these people that saw that. They're like, you know, praise God. But what's going to happen, you know, within a matter of months? What are most of these people going to be saying? Crucify him. So Jesus was just expositing scriptures and fulfilling them. So there's really nothing to see for already dull eyes. Kids speak. Kids, people for miles and miles around heard about Jesus raising the dead boy. But how many of them do you think believed in Jesus because of it? Not too many. Again, in just a few months, almost all these same people would be saying, crucify him. So it is something special to really believe in Jesus. All right. Now let's bring this to the walking wounded. Uphold the strengthless. First Thessalonians 5:14 tells us, Jesus came to bring hope. Allow yourself to hope. Allow yourself to hope. Scripture is profitable for conviction. Does my optimism in God override my pessimism about sin? Now, I can't get rid of it. And again, we're supposed to mourn because of sin. But again, we shouldn't be letting our pessimism rule us. 
Scripture is profitable for correction. Let us say, I will hope. That means I won't live exclusively in the present. Hope automatically implies looking to the future. Hope necessarily includes. Hope is <laughs> looking to the future. And so look at uh, Romans 8. Romans 8 and uh, verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So hope connects us to the future. The future comes to the present to buoy me, to lift me up. Jesus brought hope to Israel, but as a, as a nation, as a body of people, they rejected it. And that's, we read Luke 13, 35, how often I would have gathered you, you know, like a, like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not. Therefore, your house is left to you desolate. Luke 13, 35. That does not lessen the hope Jesus brings to any of the remnant of Israel who believe still today. We Gentiles who believe latch on to the same hope. There's only one covenant of salvation made with the Jews, and we are grafted into it. What Jesus did for the widow's son was real, but also symbolic. It physically taught that Jesus raises from the dead spiritually. Because really, you know, ultimately what, what happened to that son that he raised from the dead? Did he live forever? No, he died again. Okay. So the real point is in spiritual resurrection, because that does last forever. So here's our question, our ending question. Were the son or widow raised spiritually? And how would we know? Well, we would know by their confession of their spiritual death. Calling on Jesus as the only healing, the only raising from that death. The conversion of the Zarephath widow is included in the story. Remember that verse I highlighted, the very end of the story, where she says, now I know that you are a prophet from God, and I believe his word. The Nain widow that we read about today, her spiritual response is left up in the air. It doesn't say, and she believed, or and her son believed, or and people in the crowd believed. It doesn't say. It's left up in the air. Perhaps because Israel's response was left up in the air as well at this point. Maybe she believed, but Luke seems to be making the broader point that, you know, Israel was hanging in the balance as well spiritually. Well, let our response not be left hanging in the air. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would bless us to receive our Lord Jesus, who is life and whose resurrection proves that that he would surely raise us from the dead and grant us life today and to walk in that life today. We ask it for his glorious namesake. Amen. And let's turn in closing to... Uh,